Hi, welcome to Cinema Scene on Gardner Webb University Radio. I'm Noel T. Manning II, uh, hanging out with Adam Long. Adam, Adam from FocusNewspaper.com. You can check him out there, and also you can uh, find us on Facebook, interact with us there. You can also find both of us on other social media, uh, including Twitter. You can find uh, Adam on Twitter and me as well. Look for Noel T. Manning on Twitter, and I think Adam is Adam Film Fan 1970. Is that right uh, on Twitter? That's right. You Good got deal. it. So uh, check, look, look for us there. Interact with us. Uh, you can share your thoughts and comments, and we talk movies uh, each time we get together right here on Gardner Webb University Radio. Uh, it's a busy, busy season, Adam. It is. Uh, we are at the uh, really kind of the beginning of award season, and what I mean by that is uh, screeners start uh, start hitting us um, pretty uh, pretty regularly and also screenings uh, of films they want to make sure we get a chance to see before uh, voting kicks in in various uh, various critics groups and uh, that has started uh, it is in kind of full force um, tons of things have been coming out uh, you've already been getting some criterion get disc which is uh, through another Another thing, and uh, hopefully I'll get on that list and we can have that as part of a regular segment to start talking about uh, DVD and Blu-rays on a regular basis. If they can get me on that list, we'll do that as well. I but, know. Uh, a lot of stuff going on, man. Uh, a, lot of, uh, uh, a lot of films uh, being thrown at us, and not all of them are the best, um, but, uh, but, but some are definitely worth checking out. Uh, Adam spent some time last weekend in uh, in California, and uh, we're going to get Adam to talk about that experience and share that with you guys, and then we'll also uh, talk about some things in the box office that you may be interested in, uh, including uh, a film that hasn't quite made it to this area yet, but uh, getting some good buzz, and uh, Adam got a chance to check that out while he was in uh, California, and uh, so let's uh, let's dive in, man. Well, well, tell me about this trip. You've already told me uh, off the air, <laughs> but I'm like, man, this is just so much fun. We got to let our listeners know. Uh, what were you? What were you doing? What were you doing in uh, in California? It wasn't just because you go do that every weekend. No, no, no. I, I do like to go out there. Obviously, being a film geek like I am, uh, you know, Hollywood and L.A. are just endlessly fascinating to me. Everything about it, and uh, I always say it's not for everybody, but it's definitely for me. Uh, but I was out there because uh, John Gillerman passed away at the end of September. Now, who was John Gillerman, some of our listeners may ask. Well, John Gillerman was the director of The Towering Inferno and King Kong, the 1976 version. Those two movies were, were two of the first films that I saw in a theater, and they just really just put me on the path to, to just being uh, it, just absorbed by all things movie-related, you know? Right. So I had to give John Gilliman the credit because the first time I ever noticed that a film was directed by someone, I could remember seeing the ads for King Kong and seeing, directed by John Gilliman. Well, who's this guy? And I realized that somebody actually had to make these movies. They just didn't happen by themselves. So uh, when he passed away, it turns out we had a mutual friend who put me in touch with John's widow who invited me to John's memorial service after I had sent her a note of condolence. Uh, on John's passing, and so I was invited to his uh, service on Sunday evening. Um, that took place at uh, 8 o'clock, and uh, I went up there to Topanga Canyon, and it was just a lovely, lovely affair. Uh, I, I was too bad it was under such tragic circumstances, and because uh, I would have liked to have met John in, in, in life and told him what uh, I thought of his, uh, how appreciative I was of what he had, of those films, uh, and what they had done for me in my life, 
But as it turned out, I met some really interesting people there, and they asked me once. Uh, the the uh, there was a couple that sat across the table from me, and uh, the gentleman uh, that was part of that couple was the director of creative affairs for Paramount Pictures from 1975 to 1980, and he worked directly underneath Barry Diller and uh, Michael Eisner, and so he had endlessly fascinating stories to tell about the films that were made during that period. Uh, I'd like to get him on the show uh, at some point, possibly, because he just has lots of things to talk about that that I think we would all enjoy hearing. And uh, So he knew John from when John actually was working on King Kong at Paramount in 76. That's why he was there. And so that that was the connection. But in addition to that, I met um, the editor. He's serving. His name is John Chibnall. He is uh, currently the editor on the television series Net, uh, from Netflix, Daredevil, but he's also edited quite a few feature films, including uh, Edward Scissorhands. He was uh, an editor on that, as well as many other films that I'm sure our listeners would know about, and I don't have his uh, resume right in front of me, but they, they can look him up. But uh, anyway, he also was, was a very interesting, uh, gracious, um, gracious to me as well, and he turns out he is good friends with Bud Smith, who edited uh, most of William Friedkin's films of the 70s, uh, such as The French Connection and Sorcerer and The Exorcist. So they're all interconnected. It's funny how that works. And uh, and then they asked me to get up in front of this crowd, which the place was completely full. They asked me to get up and give a, uh overview of John's career in front of you know this group of about 150 people. Wow. And I'm actually standing in front of uh, his widow, uh, wow. she wants me to give this speech so uh, I mean what could I say about yeah. the man that she didn't yeah. already know but wow. uh, they were quite taken with my words and what I had to say and my enthusiasm uh, for the, for his work and so when it was all said and done they said they were going to make me an honorary Topangan which is, uh, <laughs> their, their, their version of making me an honorary citizen of Topanga Canyon that's awesome they just, man that's they awesome. love me I love them and it was a mutual love fest going on and so uh, I left with uh, quite a few friends that I'm definitely going to be uh, connecting, reconnecting with when I get back uh, into into L.A. next time. As a bonus, and this was the story I was telling you, uh, Quentin Tarantino owns a movie theater out there called the New Beverly Cinema, and it's it's been around for a long time. It's one of those old theaters that only has one screen, and it's you, the kind that we grew up with, you and I, when we were kids coming up in the world, and and the theater had the owners just wanted out of it uh they didn't want to be involved in the movie business anymore and there's not a lot of money to be made uh in those kinds of theaters that still have actual projectors uh that project film as opposed to digital so quentin tarantino bought this theater and he has programmed it uh, to run only old feature films and uh that's what they do. They just run classic films seven days a week. In fact, this coming Friday, uh, it would be really neat if it were just right around the corner because they're going to be running all eight of the Paramount uh, produced Friday the 13th films for, uh, starting at 7 p.m. So that kind of gives you an idea of what they do because uh, on Friday, the actual Friday the 13th, they're going to. And then on Saturday the 14th at midnight, they're running Saturday the 14th from okay. 1981. With, yeah. Yeah. So that's the kind of quirky stuff they do. Well, on Saturday night, this past Saturday, they ran Rosemary's Baby in 35 millimeter, and uh, a friend of mine and I we went out to to catch it. And turns out, Mr. Tarantino was sitting directly in front of us in the theaters. Wow! Very cool. 
Very cool. <laughs> yes, he was. And it was just a surreal experience to hear him laughing at what he thought was funny uh, in Rosemary's Baby or making remarks. And it was just, uh, there's quite, there's no experience quite like watching a movie with Quentin, Quentin Tarantino. Just let me say that. So <laughs> I, I, think, I think the only thing that could top it was watching one of his films with him. That might be. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's true. And uh, actually, on Friday night, he ran a uh, 35 millimeter print of Jackie Brown, so that possibly oh, wow. could have happened. Wow, but, yeah, because talk about getting director's commentary. I mean, right there, yeah. man. Wow, very cool. So, yeah, but afterwards, uh, I walked out, and I, I was hesitant as to whether I should speak to him or not, but I, I decided uh, that I would, because chances like this don't come all the time, every day. So I took the opportunity to tell him that I was really grateful that he had rescued this theater from uh, biting the dust and loved what he was doing with it and that uh, it was just such a blast to to be able to see Rosemary's Baby. And then he he, he remarked, he said, well, wasn't it great to see Rosemary's Baby in 35 millimeter?" I said, uh, yeah, yes, it was. And uh, I said, I just uh, love what you're doing with this thing and keep up the good work. And he shook my hand and wished me a good trip and this, that, and the other. So really nice guy, really, really pleasant guy. And it was interesting because uh, in the opposite direction from where his theater is is where the Bill Maher show tapes uh, at the CBS television studios, about mm, probably seven blocks um, from where his theater is. And he had been on Bill Maher just the night before, which was kind of interesting. So uh, within a 24-hour period, he had gone from there to sitting in the theater watching Rosemary's Baby with with about 75 of us so <laughs> that's great that is great man yeah it was it was a lot of uh it was a lot of fun so anyway uh like i said just uh, an interesting weekend and on top of that i was able to see trumbo which we can talk about yeah, at the, arc. Yeah, dive, at the Ar- arc light theater yeah, yeah go ahead i'm sorry yeah go ahead dive into that that's a film that's getting a lot of talk a lot of buzz it's uh limited theaters right now uh, you're, you're only able to find that in a few spots, and, uh, and yeah, L.A. is definitely one of those. Yes, uh, it is. And, yes, like I said, we saw it uh, Saturday night at the Arclight in Hollywood, which is one of the premier theaters in the country. Uh, uh, if you're able to snag tickets to see uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens there, uh, that's really going to be something, because I've heard that's the ticket to have and the place to see it. But uh, I'm sure it's long sold out by now. But anyway, uh, Trumbo is a good film, uh, especially for people who are fans of Brian Cranston and his work. Um, I, th- I think it's great that he's using his celebrity clout that he gained from Breaking Bad to uh, use it to make these, I would say, not not such projects that aren't such safe bets. Yeah. Because Trumbo is not the kind of film that's going to... Um, you know, break box office records right, or anything. Right, right. You and I know that. But it's uh, it's directed by Jay Roach, who directed all the uh, Austin Power films and the first two uh, in the Meet the Parents trilogy. I think he did the, the, the Meet the Parents, uh, Meet the Fockers. I don't think he did the last one, but uh, and he's done a couple of political politically themed films for HBO. Recount, which is terrific, and Game Change. But this one uh, is is kind of in that same neighborhood, I would say, uh, because it is about uh, Dalton Trumbo, for those who don't know, was a screenwriter, probably the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood uh, and in the late 40s. And then the, the, um, the witch hunts, the communist witch hunts right. came along for, with Senator Joseph McCarthy uh, accusing uh, Hollywood uh, 
of being uh, light on communism, shall we say. And so people were in fear of their jobs, and they started naming names of those who were communist sympathizers, and Dalton Trumbo made the top of the list. And, of course, there was a lot of conservative uh, talking heads that had a lot of power at that time, and they're represented in the film. There's John Wayne and Hedda Hopper, is played by Helen Mirren in the film. I can't recall the name of the actor that plays John Wayne in the film, but he does a really good job there as well. Uh, but they were they came out swinging against these communist sympathizers, and basically what happened was uh, out of the fear, I guess, for is pretty much what caused it. Uh, Louis B. Mayer decided he wasn't going to hire Dalton Trumbo anymore to write screenplays or anybody else who was a communist sympathizer, and then everybody followed him, and these guys couldn't get work, and they lost their homes and their livelihoods and their dignity, and it's just a real tragic story. But Trumbo found a way to get around that, and he kept writing screenplays, but he wrote them for under-assumed names, and yeah. he wound up winning two Oscars, under-assumed names, one of them for the film uh, Roman Holiday. And uh, so that was kind of interesting. And then eventually, you know, the, the black list was broken when Otto Preminger and uh, Otto Preminger, the director, and um, uh, Kirk Douglas both at the same time, uh, though not connected, uh, they both simultaneously decided to uh, hire him to write one of their films and to... Uh, give him sole credit, and that was where the black list was broken, and then the power of that uh, kind of went away at that point. But uh, it was a brave thing for them to do to stand up and, and do that. But anyway, this film charts the course of all of those events. And there's a lot of other stuff in there that that you probably don't know. It's a very informative film. It's got a good sense of humor, and the performances are great. And it's a uh, I love the uh, reproduction of uh, Hollywood from that period of time from the the forties and the fifties and sixties and, and uh, I just think it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of fun and and it actually teaches you something you learn something too in the process so I'm gonna give it a I'm gonna give it a solid B plus it does fall into some of the biopic trappings uh, from time to time that we you know that, that that these films tend to do but that's not to say that it's not worth seeing because it definitely is it is a it is a very good uh, very well made film and I would recommend uh, Trumbo so. okay and what rating did you give this I'm going to give it a B plus. All right, B plus for Trumbo uh, in uh, select theaters now. Really, only five, <laughs> five theaters uh, right now, and it should be expanding uh, this weekend actually to uh, 20 theaters. So uh, you're still going to have very limited uh, opportunities to see this. So we're glad that Adam was able to do that and give us uh, give us some background. Movie uh, running time is about a two hours, a little over two hours for that. It is rated R. Uh, R for uh, language, Adam. Is that what you've got there? Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Pretty much. You know, it's uh, it's interesting that Hollywood has taken on the whole blacklisting thing, and they've done it in several films. Um, you know, over the the past you know uh, twenty twenty five years, and uh, you know we the last time I think I remember seeing anything relating to blacklisting um, was with Good Night and Good Luck a few years ago. Right. And it covered it from a different perspective, but we saw. Uh, you know, we saw a few years ago, uh, Jim Carrey uh, had a film, um, the mat- it was called, mat- was it-, it wasn't Matinee, The Majestic. It was called The Majestic, and you right. know, that followed uh, him. He was a blacklisted uh, guy from Hollywood who actually forgot. I mean, he had, a- had amnesia and did not even know his past. 
And uh, there was another one years before, can't remember the name of it, and I'd have to look it up with, uh, I think, um, it was either Pacino or De Niro uh, in, uh, in that film as well uh, that dealt with this. And it's a really interesting topic, and it's great that Hollywood can now really look at it and continue to look at it. And uh, the whole witch hunting thing uh, was, was very fascinating. And uh, you know, there's a couple things now that are out there relating to this. One, a Bridge of Spies. Uh, also uh, kind of focuses on that fear uh, of communism, and it's right on the edge of, of looking at, you know, is your next-door neighbor that pod person, you know? <laughs> is that is your next-door right, neighbor yeah. that person? And, and uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was just that. It was looking at, um, you know, years ago in sci-fi, but it was still was looking at kind of the whole witch hunts and looking at the person beside you and, oh, that person's evil, that person's different, so... Uh, yeah, it's always good when we can look at our past and, uh, and kind of learn from it and find ways to, to bring that back to life on film and, uh, and let people know about these things that are in our, uh, in our history, in our history. Definitely, definitely. Good deal. Awesome. Well, uh, last weekend, uh, Spectre, uh, big opening at the box office. Uh, we knew it would have a decent opening. We knew it would do well. Uh, James Bond always does for opening weekend. Uh, worldwide, it's brought in over $300 million, so it's already made its money back. Uh, from a worldwide gross, is com- uh, when you combine that with what it brought in in the U.S. last weekend. Uh, last weekend, we did also have uh, opening uh, Peanuts. And uh, I did not check this out. Uh, I've always enjoyed Peanuts. I always enjoyed uh, enjoyed uh, Linus and Lucy and uh, Charlie Brown and Snoopy and uh, uh, Pigpen and the others. Uh, let's get your thoughts on this film. You got a chance to check this out. Yeah, it's it's good. Um... I, but I'm not sure that um, I, I don't know. It's it's. I guess it's it's about the peanuts film we would expect uh, for this day and age. I guess is a good, is the best way to put it. Uh, kids are gonna love it for sure, especially those who really didn't grow up with the peanut specials of our childhood. But the thing that I that the only the, the biggest demerit of the film, I guess, for me would be that it's. It's one of these films like, and this is a symptom, I guess, of most animated films that we're seeing these days. The filmmakers feel like they have to fill up the screen with something, some kind of activity going on at all times. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the film is in hyperactive mode. There's some kind of a, a there's there's you know Snoopy flying around in his plane, or there's a, a miniature plane they they built that's zooming around, or there's always some kind of something going on. And the thing that I loved about the old peanut specials of our childhood were how contemplative they were and how they they really would stop long enough for them to have ex- these exchanges of dialogue that we've that have become iconic at this point, you know. Oh yeah. And and there's some of that there. Uh a lot some of it is actually borrowed from those specials of, of our childhood. But uh, you know, it, the, the, I just didn't really connect with the film's, uh, you know, the, the way it feels like it just has to be busy at all times. Uh, that's the part that I really just ha- kind of had a problem with. That it, uh, it's, it doesn't ta- have, take the time to breathe like those, those the ones that we knew. So I, you know, having said that, I'm going to give it a B minus. I mean, okay. it's, uh, it, there's some good stuff there, and of course. Charlie Brown's as likable as, as as ever and relatable, I guess you would say, and uh, and and the rest of the characters are too. But uh, I don't know. I just wish it had uh, been a little bit more relaxed and 
a little less frenetic, I guess you would gotcha. say. <laughs> yeah. uh, way too much going on because it felt like uh, it had to be, uh, or at least yeah. the, the, the creators felt like they had to had to keep the uh, attention span moving uh, every every yep. second of the day. Yeah, and I think that's a you know I think that's a product of our generation now. It is. Um, we we just we can't just sit. And be engaging with people or with things. We feel mm-hmm. like we've got to be doing something all the time. I mean, you, I, I love going to restaurants and people watch. And now, yeah. what's even more fun is watching the people who are sitting across from each other and they're texting each other back and forth, uh, <laughs> or they're not talking to each other. They're just looking at their phones, their devices. They can't oh, carry on conversations. And so, it is that attention span. We can't. Uh, many people can't have conversations anymore. They can't have dialogue with each other. Yeah. Um, they're too busy with all the other distractions uh, in this world. And uh, it's interesting. I, I was uh, listening to a, a speaker over the weekend, uh, and he was talking about uh, a study that came out in the 1970s. And it was talking about uh, the mass media that was happening in the late 70s. And it says it is, uh, you know, there's so much mass media out there, and it's, and it's uh, fighting for our limited attention span. You know, our mm-hmm. minds are, are so small. And uh, it's fighting for this limited uh, attention span that we have, and it's trying to kind of take over, and the battle's going on, and and we don't know how to multitask in that, and we don't know how to just sit and stop. And I'm thinking, wow, that was in the late 70s when you saw kind of, uh, you started seeing cable, you started seeing the exploration, you know, you started seeing that expand, you started seeing the multiplex cinemas, and, um, you know, how true is that? It, it was true then, but how more true is it now when you've got a, a cinema in your hand, you've got a phone and you've got a cinema, you've got a computer in your hand. You know, it's it's pretty amazing that that's something that, that was said back in the 1970s is even more true today. But it was true then as well. So, you know, we've always had this battle with technology and uh, uh, and it's been a, it's a it's a great tool without a doubt. But also it can be something that can uh, can take away from society and how society interacts with each other. And uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting to see that happening. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. I love technology, and I love the fact that I can, uh, if, if I need to look up something on my phone when I'm talking to somebody, and they're like, oh, God, who, who, who was in that movie? You know, I may remember, but I can look to make sure, you know, so I'm able to do that and check that out. I mean, when we're having this show, as long as you and I have access to, uh, to the Internet, we can always back up our information by just checking it as we're talking, you know, and if we make a mistake, we can go back and correct ourselves uh, that's kind of the beauty of it, and it's uh, it's great that we've got access to it. Uh, one of the things I'm, one of the things I'm looking at now is it's uh, looking at some of the Oscar frontrunners, uh, the potential Oscar frontrunners right now. There's a whole list of uh, films that are being talked about. Uh, some of those include uh, uh, The Martian, Spotlight, uh, Brooklyn's one of those that's getting a little bit of buzz, and then a movie called Room, which uh, I want to get you to give some feedback on. Uh, I've got the uh, they sent me the Bound book and. Uh, they uh, also sent me a, a screener for this, but I've had so many screeners that have been coming across my desk, I haven't had a chance to check this one mm-hmm. out yet. So uh, let me get your thoughts on Room, and uh, we'll see if you follow suit with what uh, what some of the other critics are saying, that it's one of the best movies of the year. Well, I don't think I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm in the minority on this. All Everybody right. seems to love this film, and uh, I'm just not among them. I felt like uh, the first the first hour of the film... And the plot of the film is about this woman and her five-year-old son, and they are trapped literally in a room. You find out that the woman 
was raped, and uh, her rapist uh, is the one who's the father of the boy that's in the room with her. So she's been kidnapped and raped and then had a child, and all this has transpired, and she's been stuck in this room the whole time for five years. The boy doesn't know anything other than what he's seen in the room. And so um, then eventually you know there's going to be an escape, uh, you know. And the problem with this film is that once that happens, then the film really has nowhere to go. Uh, it just feels like the last hour of the film is just, it drags on forever and ever. And William H. Macy and, and Joan Allen are in the film, great actor, great actress, two of my faves. Uh, they don't show up until, like I said, the second half of the film, and they virtually have nothing to do. Uh, Brie Larson is compelling all the way through the film. Um, she may get a Best Actress nomination, and I would say she probably deserves it. But the boy who's been getting a lot of talk, the the, the child actor that uh, plays the, the, her son in the film, I just, uh, he, there's just, his performance basically consists of screaming and, and shouting and, and and that kind of behavior that I find deplorable in, in children. And uh, I guess you could argue the point that he has a good reason to be that way after being ca- uh, a cap- held captive for five years. But uh, I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. And the, and the last hour of the film, just uh, it just felt excruciatingly long. Uh, I heard some people at the screening I was at, there was a couple sitting there, and they said, uh, wow, it's only been two hours. I thought it was three. I heard somebody <laughs> actually say that. Wow. And so wow. I wasn't, you know, the only one feeling this. It just, I don't know. The first hour of the film is, is fairly compelling. It holds your attention. But that last hour just, uh, once the first hour is up, it's pretty much it's pretty much uh, overstayed its welcome, in my opinion. And I'm going to give it a C-. minus. Wow. Okay, C-. Uh, I'm, not, I'm just not a big fan of this film. All right, we will uh, we'll keep our eyes on this C minus for the room uh, yeah. that uh, that's getting uh, getting some good buzz, but uh, not from Adam, not from nope. Adam. Uh, room is available in uh, select. I'm not sure what the uh, what how many theaters that's in right now, uh, but it is available out there. You could check that out. Um, yeah, we're getting it uh, Friday in our area in okay. some of the uh, theaters that play uh, art art house films. So we're going to get some of those, but. Uh, Wanted to, uh, you know, and briefly I want to mention, uh, we've got a couple of Criterion releases this month. You know, our uh, the Criterion, uh, they've got their November slate out there, and two of these are just two of my favorite films uh, of all time, I guess. Uh, and they've been issued, ironically, in the same month. One of them is In Cold Blood, the one with uh, Robert Blake, and uh, based on the Truman Capote novel, and they've done a terrific 4K digital restoration, and they have uh, interviews with um, uh, John Bailey about the director of photographer Conrad Hall's work in the film, and uh, Conrad Hall, of course, being one of the great cinematographers of all time, and uh, there's interviews with uh, about the music, which is a Quincy Jones score uh, from the film, and there's an interview with the director, Richard Brooks. Like I said, the, uh, the film was shot in Panavision, and it's always been just a beautiful film to look at, and shot in stark black and white, it's chilling, and and uh, just uh, uh, a great film. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you, a lot of times with a bestseller, they they tend to, it's, it's you don't know what you're going to get when you're adapting a bestseller that's uh, as iconic as In Cold Blood, but Richard Brooks did a great job on that, and, it, and it's out in this terrific 
uh, Blu-ray edition from Criterion, so it's definitely worth it. And Akiru is another one that they've issued, and that is uh, Akira Kurosawa, the director of The Seven Samurai, and many other films, Rashomon, uh, those are just a couple. But Akiru is one of my favorite films of his, because it is a stark drama, uh, and it's a very life-affirming film. And it actually is life-affirming while also exploring the subject of death, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but it's it's about an uh, a, 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 he's a political figure, I guess you would say, and he's got stomach cancer, and he feels like his life has been meaningless. And so, in his final days, he takes on this task of building a playground for the children in his small town, and uh, wants to leave a lasting legacy. And so, it's just a beautifully uh, made film from 1952, and it has another 4K digital transfer, and. Um, as a audio commentary by Stephen Prince, who's the author of The Warrior's Camera, and uh, it's a documentary from 2003 on the making of it, and and and, a, and great booklet, of course, inside there. So anyway, Akiru, uh, if you haven't seen that or In Cold Blood, I would recommend getting them because they're they're very good, uh, very good films, and they're even better now that they've gotten 4K restorations via Criterion. So uh, good deal. Awesome. There you go. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate that. Uh, we want to let our listeners know this weekend, if you're going to theaters, uh, there are three new films in wide release. Uh, my All American, uh, based on a true story uh, that uh, that follows uh, follows a, a Texas football uh, athlete who had some uh, some major issues with health that uh, caused an impact on him, but also uh, was inspirational for the team. That's my All-American. I uh, love the Coopers. Uh, comedy uh, also opening this weekend, uh, dark comedy with, uh, wow, quite a few people, Ed Helms, Diane Keaton, John Goodman, Alan Arkin, and others. That's love the Coopers. And also the 33, uh, the true story, uh, Miners Trapped. Uh, Antonio Banderas uh, stars in this with uh, Juliette Banoche as well and Gabriel Byrne. Uh, that is opening in wide release this weekend, all three of those. And the next weekend, uh, the night before the comedy, uh, Secret in Their Eyes with uh, Julia Roberts. We'll be talking about that. And also The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2, the final installment of that. That'll be in over 4,000 theaters next weekend. So we'll be talking about uh, about those as well. And that wraps it up for this uh, episode of Cinema Scene right here on Gardner-Webb University Radio. I'm Noel Manning. That's Adam Long. Until next time. That's a wrap.